Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. This was a defining moment for America. This was a defining moment for us as a people, and it just makes people feel good. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, and welcome to the last episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I'm your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Are you firing me? No, no, no. This is just the last show with the title, Olympic Fever. Oh, you, you didn't tell me that. So you I surprised you. Am I getting fired? I mean, what happened? <laughs> did, the, did the Cossacks get to you? <laughs> Yes, we're going to have our new name next week. That's right. So next week, there's still a lot of technical stuff that I'm working on. So next week, we're playing it by ear. You might get a trailer. You might get a full show. Either way, you will find out next week what the new name is. This is very exciting. If you're in our Facebook group, you might find out earlier. Oh, for now, it's Olympic Fever Podcast. So if you join that between now and next week, we will just move you over. Right, right, right. It's exciting. It's going to be a little sad to say goodbye. I know. It'll be like 2021. It's like how Tokyo is sort of changing its name, but not really. So we're just we're just going with the Olympic movement here. That That is very true. And with the whole back catalog will still be available. We will just rename. We're going to put a little intro on all the episodes and you'll have different artwork but it will be the same old shows if you want to go back and listen to the old catalog. We know that some of you like going back and listening to Pyeongchang if you need an Olympic fix. So uh, we appreciate that. And yeah, now that we're going to have another year until getting our Olympic fix, we might need to go back. I know. You might have a little bit of a rough time. And then you're all in quarantine, so you can't even go out and pretend to be an Olympian. Right. Unless you have a podium in your back. Oh, I'm going to go build a podium in my backyard. Good idea. I like that. Just like whenever it, you need, I'm, like feeling down, run outside, get on the podium, and you're a winner. I know. I'm getting so many deliveries. I mean, I've got boxes in many sizes, so I could have a gold, <laughs> silver, and bronze level box. <laughs> but even if you can't go outside, 
now we have something to do this week. Inside, it's movie club week. So our friend film buff Fran led us in a discussion of the 2004 movie Miracle about Team USA's ice hockey team and their unbelievable journey to the gold medal at the 1980 Lake Placid Olympics. Take a listen. Fran, welcome back. Tell us all about this movie. Oh, thanks, Jill. Um, well, this is kind of a favorite of mine. I've, I've liked this movie for a while. It came out back in uh, 2004. Um, it stars Kurt Russell as Herb Brooks, who was the coach of the 1980 men's hockey team for the United States. I think he does a great job. It's all about the buildup of forming the team that became the United States Olympic men's hockey team, how they trained, you know, what was in their mindset because they were going up against what they thought about at that time was a very insurmountable opposing team in the Soviet Union. And they were the the people to beat at the Olympics because they had not lost a hockey game at the Olympics, I believe, in, in five or six Olympics, you know, up to that point. So it just kind of tells us the really heart, heart-wrenching story of these, these men. I want to say boys, um, because they were young, they were all, you know, right around 20 years old, and how they came really came together as this unbelievable team at the right time. And they peaked with their skills and their abilities and their training to really beat the Soviets at the 1980 Winter Games in Lake Placid. It's just a really good kind of uplifting movie, you know, and we kind of need it at this time. So I remember this. I know you remember this, Fran. Vaguely. Do you remember this, Jill? I, I don't. Okay, good. Well, I, I say good because... You know the story because it's told all the time here. It's it's big Olympic lore in the United States. So I am pretty sure I wasn't totally aware of the 1980 Olympics. Like, 76, I knew Dorothy Hamill. But, you know, we're now getting into the phase of life where I will even soon understand what the Olympics is. See, my sister at this time in 1980 was a huge hockey fan. So this hockey tournament, even though I was still pretty little, I was very, very aware of. So I remember watching the U.S.-Soviet Union game. So I'm kind of glad that you guys don't remember it because I'm wondering if it fits with what you thought of it. Because I have to say it did for me. I thought it fit very well into the historical narrative of that time and of that place and of that situation. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I was still a younger kid at that time, so I don't remember. I was trying to recollect to see if I remembered, like, my dad or my grandparents watching when we were home. I mean, they must have. I mean, if you think back and looking back at just articles and stuff written about it, you know, you hear so many people saying, I mean, it was the thing. I mean, I don't know if the initial games when they first started playing at the Olympics were as you know well watched but i mean that semifinal to me against the soviets i don't think anybody didn't watch that game <laughs> it's true well we heard the story when we when jill and i visited lake plastic how eric hayden had gone to the miracle and ice game and he almost missed one of his races because he overslept oh wow after celebrating wow that, that victory so that would have been an interesting side note well, a neat thing, too, that I read in, a, in an article was that Herb's wife and kids almost didn't even make it to the opening ceremonies because, I mean, the place was like a zoo. I mean, there was so many people there, athletes, 
fans. You know, there was no place to stay. I mean, the place was just jammed with people, you know, and I think she said she had a hitchhike. <laughs> to be able to make it. I could believe you know, it. Imagine, but there is, like you said, you know, there's such this lore and this mystic quality about this fabulous game. And I, I think the movie does a really good job of capturing the essence of kind of like this David versus Goliath picture of these young kids who maybe have decent talent. They're probably, some of them are going to go on to the NHL, but they didn't think they had a shot. I mean, I think the only person that really thought that it could be done was Herb, if he could really put in motion his, you know, his training and what he saw as the way to beat them, which was to beat the Soviets at their own game, you know, and what they said was that the Soviets really just, just dominated their opponents. They were just always on the offensive rather than defense. And most teams just couldn't compete with them. So for Herb, his strategy was, well, get them on the offense, you know, get them as conditioned and as well-trained as they possibly could to be able to beat these guys at their own game. And that's ultimately what happened. So right at the beginning of the movie, and one of when I put this out to the Facebook group, somebody complained that they didn't like that opening segment where it kind of set up where the U.S. was when mm -hmm. the team was put together in 1979. And I loved that section. I did too. Because I felt like it really gave you the flavor of America was really defeated when that movie starts in, mm -hmm. in the summer of 79, mm -hmm. it was up against the ropes and all those other cliches, but America was not, you know, we're the best country in the world. It felt defeated. It was a bad, bad decade. Bad yeah, time. With the inflation and the gas crisis. I mean, that stuff I thought was very, I, I thought it was very poignant to kind of put that stuff in you know, to kind of really encapsulate where we were. We were kind of down and out as a country, let right. alone the hockey team. So I thought it was a worthy start to the movie, you know, and it kind of just showed how, you know, this story and these people, you know, really uplifted a nation, you know, with what they accomplished. I loved the scene where the guys are in the gas line. They sort of snuck that in. Mm. They had one conversation with the assistant coach. Mm -hmm. Do you remember sitting in gas lines with your moms? Oh, yeah. I yeah. Do. You don't? I remember. I remember. I remember too. Yeah. I mean, that was just so part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. One thing I didn't like historically was, and I, I said this earlier to Jill, everything was too clean. How so? I remember when I was a kid, the streets were dirty. There was litter, you know, buildings were, were, you know, there was leaded gasoline still buildings were dirt. Things were just, and because, you know, governments, New York city almost went bankrupt. I mean, local governments had no money. Crime was very widespread mm -hmm. and, and the rates were very high. So it was just a grittier, dirtier time. And I don't think, I think the movie kind of put a bit of a Disney polish. Sure. Sure. On that. But one thing they did do well was the Boston accents. Oh, it was great. The kid who portrayed Mike, Mike Arruzzioni, I thought he did a fantastic job. Well, and they said, too, that the, the men chosen were chosen for their hockey ability, not so much their acting ability, because they knew it was going to be a very demanding, physical-appearing show, and they wanted it to be very accurate. Now, Jill, how were the Minnesota accents? Because you would know better than either Fran or I. 
I think they were okay. I mean, it was it's interesting because I think Kurt Russell got that. I should have looked up some uh, Herb Brooks footage, but he got that very kind of pinched, I don't talk a lot because I'm a Midwestern <laughs> man kind of thing. <laughs> well, and unfortunately, you know, what was what has been said about Herb Brooks is that he was a very kind of stern coat. You know, he was not his player's best friend. And actually, one of the critiques that some of the former players have said is that they portrayed him too nicely (laughs) in the movie because he really didn't chum around with the players as they kind of alluded to somewhat. I don't think they made it that he was so happy-go-lucky with the players, but they did put that wall up between him and and the players, and they had the assistant coach kind of be the nice guy. But the real players actually said he was even more kind of standoffish, which probably wouldn't have played as well in the movie. And it's Kurt Russell. And it's Kurt Russell. You can't hate Kurt Russell. I love Kurt Russell. It's a different time, and it's a different philosophy of coaching. And I Mm -hmm. wonder how much that would play today because you look at the scene where they're doing all the, I I was reading an article that used to call them Herbies. Herbies. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. back and forth between the lines. Yeah, you you have to wonder if somebody today would call that abusive. Mm. And clearly Jim Craig got a concussion in that game against the Soviet Union. Right. When he got hit. I mean, just even the way they portrayed in the movie, he's shaking his head. So today, clearly concussion protocol would have... Right. come into play so that would have been very different but yeah it was definitely of the toughen them up play right. on one leg kind of mentality right and i think they did a really good job with the cinematography i think with the costumes it really felt like you were back in the late 70s early 80s i mean the plaid pants and the outfits and the party where they had a, a halloween party just the whole feel of the movie did it it really was great at kind of putting you back in another era i thought and i I think it really helped kind of put you in that zone without being kitschy right i thought when you talk about the cinematography the cinematography regarding the hockey itself Mm -hmm. the skating no i mean i know all those guys were cast for their Mm -hmm. ability to play hockey Mm -hmm. i thought the skating was brilliant yeah, I and thought the way they, they shot it angles. I, I thought the way they did it was really I mean, especially when you were talking about them doing the recreation of the actual events from what they were saying as far as the news, the sportscasters of what was going on on the ice. I mean, it seemed very true to life, though. I did read that a lot of the equipment was not historically accurate. Oh, that it was of the era of when the film was made. Oh, okay. But your average, again, sort of Disney cleaning it up, but some of that could have been for safety of the of the cast. Like what kind of equipment are you talking about? Uh, the helmets, especially, oh. were a different shape. And some of the, something with the way the blades attach to the skate. Okay. There's mm-hmm. a different mechanism. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, well, you know, they obviously kept the old goalie masks. I know. <laughs> And at that time, you would not have seen a water bottle on the uh, goalie net. That came later. That was a later. But again, it doesn't, you know, we talked about this with Chariots of Fire. There's fact and truth. And mm-hmm. none of those things sort of take away from the, the truth of the film. Mm-hmm. I know that Jill had talked about the criticisms when we talked before about some of the critiques of the tropes and the 
Right. Uh, Roger Ebert was not a super fan of this movie. Really? Uh, he must have been in a bad mood that day. <laughs> He's not a hockey fan, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Did he feel like it was just a kind of just a too too much of like a feel good movie? Yes. And to one of the things he complained about was the, you know, the trope of the long suffering wife, mm -hmm. you know, the trope of the team of misfits who come mm -hmm. together. The one thing I was glad they did not insert in this movie was some random girlfriend <laughs> with one of the players. Right. They didn't have time for random girlfriends. But I think that, you know, when you talk about the wife, I mean, she really, unfortunately, was put in a bad spot with this because, I mean, he really probably just ate, slept and drank this hockey team from when he got hired to the Olympics. So, I mean, I really do think it probably was just, he was a phantom in their lives. So she was you like know? being a single mom and trying to just make do and everything. Right. I mean, that's the choice she made, I guess, because he was a hockey coach for the, their, for the university of Minnesota before this. So she, she knew his love of the game and knew what a, what a commitment he probably had to his, his work so but I, I liked her I liked her in this movie oh I thought she I love Patricia Clarkson mm -hmm. I think she's fantastic you know and it's so funny too because like you see them you know you see those hockey players come out and they've come out like as a team since the Olympics for I believe they came out for Olympic events uh, well Salt Lake City they lit the cauldron Right. So, I mean, and, and when people see these guys, like, they just explode. I mean, so I think that there's still a resonance to their story, yeah. you know, even though it was so long ago, that still, you know, makes people feel like, hey, you know, this is a define. this was a defining moment for America. This was a defining moment moment for us as a people. And it just makes people feel good. You know, which is, I think, why we love watching the movie. Uh, my little seven-year-old actually watched it with me. And she absolutely loved it. Not a hockey fan before, but just she really, I think, just got really, you know, into the story and just the love of seeing these kids do this incredible feat, you know, that they didn't expect to do. I mean, she was she was enthralled. She wanted to see it again and again. Well, no, that's interesting because she has no context. Right. For it. And yet it's still the story still hooked her in the way they presented the story. Right. What I wanted a little bit more of was kind of the other love story in the movie, which I saw as Jim Craig and his dad. They sort of, I wonder if there was more in the script. I think I've said this before, but that was kind of, in real life, it was such an emotional story. And apparently sure. they were very close and the mother had died and this was mm -hmm. the mother's dream. And I wish there was just a little bit more of what that relationship was like between Jim Craig and his and his father because I thought the scenes that those two actors had together they were so connected there was mm -hmm. such great chemistry you know mm -hmm. father-son chemistry between mm -hmm. them I wanted a little bit more of that but again there's like 20 stories on the screen mm -hmm. the movie actually doesn't really seem like it's it's not focused on the hockey players. It's Herb Brooks's story. Yes. Mm -hmm. That was one of many side paths they probably could have taken to have a B story or whatever. But so much was involved in putting the team together. And, and even though you're talking about a timeline that wasn't even a year long, mm -hmm. just the amount of yeah. work that went into 
her getting the team together and <laughs> getting them conditioned and, and showing a lot of showing a lot of hockey. Yeah. You know, you had to raise the drama through the different games that they played along the way. He just came off as through the movie as a person who really knew his craft. I mean, he studied up on these kids. I think he knew, you know, judging from how they portrayed it in the movie, I think he knew who he wanted before they even set foot on the ice. You know, and he just waited for them to step foot on the ice just to solidify that choice. But, you know, he seemed like, as the movie portrayed him, to be a person that really knew exactly what he needed, knew what he wanted, and he just attacked it. I thought they also did a good job with a couple of very quick little short conversations that those guys kind of all knew each other. Mm-hmm. They had played against each other in, mm-hmm. in college and junior. So, like, even somebody who came from... Boston University, they had played against the University of Minnesota so that they were rivals and teammates. And that world of college hockey and junior hockey in the U.S. at that time was very small. Mm -hmm. But it was interesting how, you know, like probably anybody on that team, I think Mike Arruzzioni once said in in a quote where he said, you know, I was the captain, but any of the kids on that team could have been the captain because they were the captain of their either their high school team, their college team. They were all superstars in their own right at that point. And they kind of, I think, alluded to the fact that these kids came with egos. They thought they were the best players. And, you know, to come up against the best of the best of their caliber and then kind of taken down a peg, you know, was kind of interesting to see. But I do like how they came together. You know, you could tell that there was this East versus West. They pitted each other against each other in the beginning. But then, you know, in the end, it showed them really kind of coming together and saying, well, no, I'm not. You know, and that and that shows up in that pivotal scene where Mike Ruzioni does say, you know, when Herb Brooks asks, who do you play for? You know, in the beginning of the movie, he said, oh, I play for Boston University. But, you know, the correct answer is no. You know, when you were chosen for this team, you played for the United States of America. And that's what eventually he comes to that realization that that's what Herb wanted him to say, you know, and to take away that kind of compartmentalization of, you know, where he's from. You know, it's not just about me in the Northeast. It's about the United States. Unfortunately, not historically accurate. True, true. But great the, scene, great scene. Great scene, yeah. I mean, the scene of them skating was true, true with a few quirks. But yeah, that scene about yelling United States of America, apparently the team came, like that happened in the first training camp, that coming together, but that wouldn't have made as good of a movie. <laughs> but the idea that they came from all these different colleges and then coalesced, mm-hmm. again, truth versus fact, was, mm-hmm. was definitely true. One of the Facebook comments that we got was about the hair (laughs) that they were questioning the hairiness (laughs) and some of the facial hair. And let me tell you something, people, they underdid the hair. (laughs) I I was looking the hipster and beer and mustache trend of the last few years has nothing on the (laughs) seventies. Oh my God. Yeah. There was long hair there oh yeah, hair. There was a lot of handlebar mustaches. Yeah, and, yeah. and there were not enough missing teeth. Yeah, that's true. Everybody's teeth were, and not enough crooked noses. True. I hair I was spot on. The beards. I mean, that was the '70s look. Yes. No question. They but, they must have loved having to grow their their beards and hair for this. I mean, come on. You know, again with the streets being too clean, 
their noses and teeth were both too <laughs> pristine for hockey so players. Kind of like those period dramas where you look back at like 1750s Scotland and everybody's got white, white straight teeth, and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't think that was what it was like. <laughs> yeah, Jack O'Callaghan, who is a very handsome young oh, man handsome. in the movie, handsome, oh. didn't have his front teeth in reality. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would have changed the dynamic a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> little different. But, so Jim but Frank yeah. was a hairy, handsome beast in real life. <laughs> but you know what? Their personalities, you know, and it, it would be really interesting to see the real life personas versus these personas that we see on the screen because they, they did, they, I think they really imbued the characters with these really good characters. You know, like you said, Jim Craig, he was like that tortured kid who had this, this great talent, but just, you know, he just, it doesn't seem like he could get over the personal, you know, struggles that he was dealing with. You know, and Callahan had that like chip on his shoulder, like he was the best, you know, and then Aruzioni kind of portraying himself as this, like the quintessential captain, you know, he's keeping cool, he's keeping it together, you know, whether he was really like that or not, you know, really good question. But I mean, seeing the real Mike Aruzioni in, you know, interviews, he seems very calm, cool and collected. So, you know, it, it would be neat to know if they really had a chance to talk to these guys and get a sense of what was their personalities that we saw portrayed on the screen. And I kind of wonder if maybe this is a scene that made it on the cutting room floor, but how did he get chosen to be captain? Yes. Yeah. I noticed that was not in the movie. That's such a classic movie. Talk about movie trope. You know, we choose the captain. Mm-hmm. But maybe there was nothing interesting about, maybe he was just elected by the, that was. By the team. Who knows? Yeah. yeah it was very simple. Yeah, I don't the know. The other thing that I loved when you talk about the personality, when they talked about the cone headline, mm-hmm. and they had yeah. that one scene <laughs> where the three of them come into the coach's office and they're finishing each other's sentences. Mm-hmm. And for any hockey fan, you have known those three guys. Mm-hmm. You have known the line mm-hmm. that if you've ever, you know, been around high school or college hockey, that one line that works like that, mm-hmm. it's like once is, you know, shoot, you know, pass, shoot, score. And it was just, you know, as a hockey fan, I loved that little scene mm-hmm. that was kind of a nothing scene, but it, it mm-hmm. was so clued into the director really knew hockey to make a point of putting that in. What I found interesting, too, was, you know, the fact that Herb Brooks was on the last United States hockey team that actually won gold. No, he was cut. cut. He was, he was the he last was, guy cut, but he was on that team until he got cut right before right. the Olympics. And, you know, that seemed to be kind of like a little undercurrent, yes. like through the movie. Like, you know, was he doing this to prove that, you know, he could be on that team and be a winner or did he do it just to spite them because he got booted off? I don't know. Like it was, he was on, he was on the 64 team. Oh, okay. In real life. They sort of glossed over that in the movie. Again, we saw that with Chariots of Fire where Harold Abrams Mm -hmm. had been in the previous Olympics, but that did, that took away. Right. The tension. Yeah. But another scene that was similar was, again, that scene right before the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union in the locker room. 
And it was very much the same as the chariots of fire scene until the moving speech, but the guys are all taping their sticks, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of going through the motions of prepping, which I, again, I loved that scene. Yeah. It really shows what, you know, that mental part of what they needed to accomplish, you know, and you could, you could see that without a lot of movement and activity, you could see the, the, the importance of what was about to occur. They felt it. And best pep talk ever in a movie? (laughs) Probably one of the best. (laughs) So now I want him, well, if Kurt Russell wants to show up and give me that speech every few (laughs) days, that would be great. Not going to complain, but I was saying I want Emily Cook, who is our aerial skier. I wanted her to come give me pep talks. So now we can have like a rotating... cast coming and giving me pep talk because clearly i, I would them. prefer to have the noah emmerich pet talk as an assistant coach i thought it was really good and i think yeah. i would be more of a herb brooks kind of person so i need the <laughs> bad, i need the good cop to he was so good as the assistant coach i mean i i think I, I thought he was really good too i think he gave us a poignancy to the show too i mean you know, those boys yeah, I mean, he, you could see the fact that he had to be like the more nurturing, supportive person if, if Herb got ugly, you know, with them. And uh, so I, I thought his, he was very well cast in his position, too. I thought the cast overall was, was stellar. Yeah, it was spot on. Yeah. And the though the I Russians. did have one problem with the Russian. <laughs> I love the, the, the Soviet coach guy. He was great. So I want to talk a little bit about the Soviet coach, Victor mm-hmm. Tikhonov, and his eyebrows. <laughs> in real life, Victor Tikhonov was much younger oh, wow. in 1980 than that actor was. Huh. He was a very nice-looking man. He did not have Brezhnev eyebrows. <laughs> I do know. Do I want to know why all Soviet coaches? have to look like bears that are about to eat your head. All the pictures I saw of Tikhonov, he smiles. There are pictures, and in, but not in that movie. No, he had his Brezhnev eyebrows, and he was going to kill you with his laser eyes. He leopard. He kill you with laser eyes. It's like, really, we're going to go with that Soviet trope? Soviet bad, U.S. good. That's, oh, I mean, that's the only way we Americans are able to understand that is if we see bad soviet with bushy eyebrows it's like that that is the signal for a soviet enemy i have <laughs> eyebrows that will kill you it's like what really yeah that was disappointing although i did love it in the end where the last couple of the like the last minute and it the, it, the realization hits this guy that he's they're gonna, gonna lose but he doesn't know what to do because he's never been in that situation so he's basically standing there dumbfounded which was priceless because, I, I mean, I don't know if that's exactly how he felt, but that's what m- would make me think he felt, you know, that way. Because it's like, come on, these guys were never going to lose. I mean, they were unbeatable. They never had a comeback, you know. So pulling the goalie, which would, would have been the smartest thing to do to get the advantage in the last minute, was not even on the table, which is incredible, you know, when you think about it after the fact. But, you know, maybe this guy was just so startled by the fact that, these guys were losing. You know, it was a shock. Right, and he had the eyebrows standing straight <laughs> out, so you knew he was confused. <laughs> it was 
really irritated by but that. Didn't he do the, but didn't he do the conciliatory nod to yes. her at the end? And so it looks like they were friends, you know, which they always do. But <laughs> The other thing that was very historically inaccurate was when they get to Lake Placid, they had like three or four people walking abreast at the sidewalks. The sidewalks in Lake Placid are not that wide. Oh. When Jill and I were there, we could barely walk next to each other. Wow. It was so clearly that was not filmed in Lake Placid. Right, those right. The streets were narrow, I man. Think they said it was filmed in Canada. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, I do have a little tidbit. I think I looked up some tidbits just of that game. And according to my research, the best ticket you could buy for that hockey game was $67.20 face value. But they were scalping at three times that, which, I mean, modern day doesn't even sound like that much. I mean, but I guess back then, you know, three times that must have been a pretty penny for a hockey ticket. But I mean, a car was probably a couple thousand dollars. So if you put it in context, in context, I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, and I also looked up the whole O'Callaghan, his injury, because I'm like, wow, did one of their star players really get injured and miss that many games? And the fact is that he did get injured, but he only missed two games, not five. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they chose to, and it was probably just for the dramatics of it, just to kind of, you know, stretch that out. But um, I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, he was hurt, you know, so that was true, but... You know, obviously it didn't seem like it was as bad as, you know, they let on in the movie. I'm glad you brought that injury up because did either of you get totally freaked out when he was walking on crutches on the ice? (laughs) I was screaming at the, you know, I'm sitting there watching going, you're going to fall and your other (laughs) knee is going to get hurt. I'm like, Jack, no, why are you on crutches on the ice? Oh, I was like, I can't, it, this didn't happen. It's like, you know, he doesn't get her. But no, I was sitting there being his mother <laughs> and worrying about the actor falling on the ice as he's sliding across the question. Who goes on crutches on the ice? Whose idea was that scene? <laughs> Come on, dude. That had to, oh man. You know, if you go to a hockey game and they have the uh, intermission shootout for the fans and there's always some woman in high heels. <laughs> Well, I'm not her mother. I just think in general that this was such a a feel-good kind of movie. I mean, obviously, if you were a fan of the Soviets, not so much. But if you're kind of like a Team USA person, this really just gets gets you going. Like, there's just such this patriotism and this feeling of national, you know, love that, that goes on in this movie. And I think that was the point, you know, like you were saying about the beginning, where, you know, we felt like we were in this big rut and recession and inflation and the Iran, the hostage situation, you know, there was so many negative things going on that, you know, the country really needed a boost. And I really think that it sounds like it's a, such a, such a simple thing like this hockey game, but it, it really wasn't. It really proved to be, you know, a defining moment in our country. Something you said, Fran, I did want to follow up on. What I think was so amazing, and I think came through very well in the movie, was that that patriotism was not nationalistic or jingoistic. It wasn't, we hate everybody else. No. It was, we are so proud of what these kids have done. Right. And that's a real difference. Right. It was very positive. Yes. It was a very positive, uplifting 
feeling. You know, it wasn't like you said, oh, no, we just hate these Soviet guys. It wasn't about that. It was about, wow, we really come together, you know, and we're proud to say that we're part of this. Right. Well, excellent pick, Fran. (laughs) It was good. It was really, I mean, out of, I I think it's a good solid three-star movie. Yeah, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong with Miracle. And it's, it really is one of those movies that you can watch with your seven-year-old and right. your husband will still be happy, as mine was. <laughs> and watch over and over again, because when I saw it the first time I came in partway through, and the second time it was like, oh, I'll just dial it up on demand, and I'll watch just the beginning. But then you're just sucked in, and you watch the whole thing, and you've had the same feelings all over again. It's fantastic. So. And we got to relive the era of the plaid pants. That's right. An absolute best Boston accents I've heard in a movie. <laughs> okay, so what are we doing next? Next, we will be doing two movies. We're actually going to do a back-to-back blockbuster, double-header. We're going to be talking about the movies Without Limits and Prefontaine. So both movies do uh, tell the story of an Olympic U.S. runner, um, and his name is Steve Prefontaine, who participated in the 1972 Games. Well, Fran, thank you so much. I'm really excited to watch the Prefontaine movies because I remember when they came out and they made uh, a big splash and about how to compare the, the, the two movies against each other and with the life of Prefontaine, who was a big star in the track and field world here in America. So we look forward to talking about those with you in August, let's say, and uh, hope you have a great summer. Thank you so much. I'm looking really forward to watching these two movies because I have not seen them before. So it'll be exciting to, you know, hear his story and and be able to give you some feedback. Thank you, Fran. And we are looking forward to having you back in August for our double feature of 1997's Prefontaine and 1998's Without Limit. Oh, Prefontaine came first? Yeah, I was surprised because I thought they both, I mean, they were so close. I remember just not the controversy, but just like, how do you have two movies about pre- Steve Prefontaine coming out months apart from each other? And it wasn't like it was an anniversary of anything. It was just sort of random. Like someone just woke up and was like, we must do a movie about Steve Prefontaine. <laughs> and that sort of floated around the zeitgeist of Hollywood. But yeah, I thought Without Limits came first. Yeah, no, I. that's what, according to IMDb. Well, I live by IMDb. Right. Well, now you got two good ones, I'm hoping. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it'll be fun to compare them and see which one we like better and how they're, you know, how much of Steve Prefontaine's life they cover. You know, does somebody cover one thing and somebody covers a different thing? That'll be kind of interesting. And lots more groovy 70s fashions. Oh, yeah. All right, let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Wait, is this going to be the last time I get to say tofu? Yes. Oh. So we have to think of our team name for the next. I might need I might need some input. Tofu. Uh, sad tofu. But no, none of the news is sad. The news is no, all good. No, the news is good because winter sports are gearing up for next season because they are still planning on having a season since most of them start competing in November. Who knows? They could probably they could We're have hoping. a season. Yeah, we hope so. But Claire Egan has made the U.S. Biathlon World Cup team next season. She just can't walk away. I know she can't, which is great. I will take it because I'm not arguing, but I think it's funny. It was like Pyeongchang was going to be your last year. Right. Nope. Then, then yeah, turn it turned around, got a good coach, changed up the performance. So 
got some flowers and that's all she needed a medal that's all you need or excited to watch her again next year and then sarah hendrickson has been named to the u.s ski jumping team for next season so she had taken a year off and now she is back excellent i'm so excited for her on that as well we like our ladies on their skis i know keeping their uteruses in place because guess what ski jump doesn't hurt you in that way who knew (laughs) now crashing and landing on your head that will still hurt right but hasn't been proven to have a uterus issue gotta go back and listen to our sarah hendricks interview to understand that (laughs) we'll link back to that so that you don't think we're insane exactly All right, uh, let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. Oh, I am not excited about this, but I am so excited about this because, you know, Paris 2024's hotel novella is kind of on pause and the Mara novella for the marathon has kind of been saw, you know. Settled. They sort of finished that. They came to the last chapter. waiting for something new and dramatic to happen and guess what it's about the cash that's right who is going to pay the costs involved with moving the games and this is the best part so the japan times said they did a big article on it and wrote that in a question and answer post on the ioc's website the ioc said that shinzo abe had agreed had quote let's get this in quotes agreed that japan will continue to cover the costs it would have done under the terms of the existing agreement agreement for 2020 and the ioc will continue to be responsible for its share of the cost and for the ioc it's already clear that this amounts to several hundred millions of dollars of additional costs it stated but like the kyoto news said that we're looking and the japan times was also saying you're looking at close to three billion dollars right now they figure to just because of the postponement yes just to cover the cost of the postponement so the ioc website was saying if originally japan was going to cover 50 percent and the ioc was going to cover 50 percent those percentages still stand right regardless of the actual numbers but we know how the ioc works because they want to have games but they don't want to be responsible for anything so the i the federations are responsible for running the events not the ioc the host city is responsible for putting on the games not the ioc really so most of the costs get under this understanding get shoved on to tokyo 2020 somehow i don't think shinzo abe agreed to this no and that's what what the government said and lo and behold the ioc updated its website <gasps> it did oh this is so fantastic because <laughs> and you can go and there's a frequently asked question and they have all these questions about what's going on and what will be the financial impact of postponing the games right in front updated well i think i've got the name for this this is the yen novella oh i love it i love it so yeah i just thought of that novella and this will go on for quite some time oh yeah because there's been a lot who who's gonna pay for this This is gonna be expensive it's yeah it's going to be very expensive and there's already talks about cutting stuff so on market watch had a story where the tokyo organizing committee is already talking about cutting the extras to curb the costs and that makes perfect sense but extras like what extras like all the live sites they were going to have they were going to have like a good nine live sites all over the city 
those will probably go away or maybe the art festival them. we've had we're yeah, recorded on probably the theater festivals like that. yeah the, that yeah. agora marketplace thing probably i would be surprised if that came back although it does have a store but they might just leave the store yeah it's a little sad for people who were going to go or people who couldn't get tickets and this would be a way to have an olympic moment but at the same time i completely understand because that's expensive and i wonder if they're already thinking they want to have fewer people in any one location. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? I mean, you're talking about an incredibly dense city to begin with. So how do you manage that in, in even in terms of the regular population? Yeah. Much less an influx of millions of people coming in for an event. We shall see about that. But it was, oh, this is going to be a good one. And you know it's going to go on for years. Oh, it's not going to end when the no, cauldron no, is extinguished. Oh, no. Yen novella will have multiple sequels. <laughs> I do not envy any of them for having to negotiate. Oof. But I hope they can work it out. And I, I really hope that Japan doesn't get screwed. Right. They've done a wonderful job so far of getting everything ready and being prepared. I thought, you know, I thought today if Rio was told you have one more oh. year, they'd go, oh, thank goodness. Maybe we can get some venues done, you know. But you know what Rio would have done? They would have done like every teenager with a term paper due. Exactly. They still yeah. would have waited until the night before. And then I thought that too. So, so it wasn't going to be any good. And there would have been even worse corruption. So. Oh. But Japan, I mean, they really had their act together. Stuff was done. There's got to be all these fancy things. And not, not necessarily fancy is not the right word, but special. They, I mean, the Japanese know how to put that special touch on everything. And it was going to be everywhere. And now that's really kind of taken away from them. And they're stuck with a bigger bill. And hopefully they can recoup some of those costs. Okay, here's what they're going to do. They're going to create the no-touch Metal delivery robots that I suggested. And I'm telling you, everybody is going to want one. Because if you could have a no-touch delivery robot pick up your groceries for you right now, you would be all over that. It could have the Olympic rings on it. It could say Tokyo 2021 with the little extended letters. Can it kiss you on both cheeks? It can bow at you. <gasps> it's Japanese. You no-touch. No touch no touch, no virus contamination. It bows at you. All right, Tokyo 2021. Make up that extra funds. <laughs> can, you can do it. You can do it. If anybody can, they are going to just do so well with this. And I'm just going to keep saying it until it happens because I'm going to believe. All of us who are going to go, hopefully you can save up a little extra cash and put it into their economy when you go. I have a yen for that. <laughs> All right. It's just been me and the dog who's had to hear this. So, you know, <laughs> I'm ready. You know who else is ready? Dick Pound. Oh, Dick Pound, because he's going rogue again. <laughs> oh, Dick Pound. So he told the CBC that he doesn't foresee a further de delay as realistic. So it's 2021 or they're not going to happen. That's what Dick Pound says. Well, you know what? The last time he went rogue was about the postponement. Right. So, I mean, could they really postpone it another year and be after Beijing? I don't see how that's possible. Because, wait, okay, so what What would the Olympiad be? Well, the Winter Olympiad is different than the summer anyway. No, no, no. It's always four years, and it encompasses both. So is 
oh, Tokyo. Yeah. Was it was it Pyeongchang and Tokyo, and then it's Beijing and Paris, or is it Tokyo and Beijing? Because that's kind of critical in a sense. So an Olympiad is four years, and it starts on January first of the year that the Summer Olympics are going to take place. So right now, because the Summer Olympics were supposed to happen in 2020, we have begun the 32nd Olympiad. So for the first time in modern Olympic history, the Summer Olympics will take place in the second year of an Olympiad. So the 33rd Olympiad, which is going to start when in 2024 is going to start in 2024. Okay, regardless. So it doesn't doesn't really matter. It's just like... Right. That if they kept pushing it back, then just the summer and the winter games would be in the same year as they used to be back in the day. Yes. So if you go back to 1940 and 1944, the 12th Olympiad and 13th Olympiad were not skipped. They were not celebrated. Oh, that's interesting. So 36 was the 11th Olympiad, 48 was the 14th Olympiad. That is interesting. Well, because they would have had them if they hadn't canceled them. Exactly. So they just say those Olympiads were not celebrated, but that four-year period still passed. That's interesting. Now, the Winter Games are not an Olympiad. They're called the number Olympic Winter Games. Okay. So we're counting the years by the summer games, but it really doesn't matter. If you go by the World War II example, mm-hmm. the 32nd Olympiad, which is the Tokyo Olympiad, is going to happen whether the Olympics happen or not. Okay. It would go back to that not celebrated. That is so fascinating. The Winter Games, however, will change number if for some reason Beijing didn't happen. Oh, that's interesting, too. Oh, because, oh, so... That would have been what? So the first games were in 24. So they must have like just like the seventh or eighth winter games went. It went from right. 1936. So for example, 36 was the fourth winter games. And in 48, when it started again, it was the fifth winter games. They didn't skip numbers because it's counting the winter Olympic games, not the Olympiad. That is fascinating. So whenever these Tokyo games happen, they're still the games of the 32nd Olympiad because we're still in that four-year period. We don't start the next four-year period until January 1st, 2024. That makes sense. So that's why Bach said, we're not changing the name. But Dick Pound did say in this article with uh, the CBC that he did hope they happened. Thanks, Dick. He said, uh, I'll quote this one. He said the the Japanese have said we can keep the ball up in the air for a year, but not longer than a year. So we really have to hope that we get this act together in time for 2021. It's like those plate spinners. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I mean, that's really too hard to, you know, I mean, just the village alone, people have been talking about those units have been sold or many of those units have been sold. And these buildings that you have uh, uses for and the people who are going to manage them need to have that calendar time back so that they can get other shows and events in there. You know who else is going rogue? No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Our good friend, Jen Coates. Good friend, Jen Coates. The Australian Olympic Committee trying to keep him within the fold forever. So they're going to vote on a motion 
at their annual general meeting on May 9th whether or not they should create an honorary life president position for John Coates. My vote is yes. Well, I guess should it said the Inside the Games was reporting this and they said, well, should the motion be adopted, the honorary life president position could be awarded to a person who has served as AOC president for the Australian Olympic Committee president for at least 13 years and has, quote, rendered outstanding service to the Olympic movement and sport. Who could that be? Don't know. Well, you know, John Coates has rendered outstanding service for my life. He has made my life better just by existing. That, That is true. So he absolutely can be honorary president of my house. Well, and it's not, okay, uh, it's, it's not like he hasn't been president long enough. I mean, he's been, it's almost life. He's He's uh, been AOC president since 1990. And been he's in that not role dying for anytime soon. He's perfectly right. preserved. Right. This is not without precedent because they gave it to the former president, Sidney Grange, who held the role from 85 to 90 when John Coates took over. But uh, as honorary honorary life president, he would have uh, permanent membership, but not have voting power. But he could still go rogue, and he he would still make my life. And the fact that he couldn't vote would free him to even say more. Right. So Coates has said that this term will be his last as AOC president. He is 69 years old. That's young. He's got tons of time to go rogue. Yes. Does he have a knighthood? He's not Sir John, is he? I don't think so. He should be. Maybe they can work on that. Yeah. Honorary life president, knighthood, because I want him to be Sir John. That would just make me so incredibly happy. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine the conversation he would have with the queen? Oh. He would say such inappropriate things to her. No, he wouldn't. He knows better. No, no, no. But like in the best way and she would laugh. Like they, you know, because the queen has supposedly has a wicked sense of humor. So he would say something to her and he, then she would, you know, do that queen laugh. And we'd all be like, what did John Coates say to the queen? But he'd never tell. And she would never tell. She's very she good at tell. keeping her, her mouth buttoned up. She understands that. I know. And we will end. We're not good at this. <laughs> Maybe with the next show, we'll learn not to end on kind of a sad note. Where's the sad note? I have no sad. Today, the day we are taping, which is April 22nd, it's the 10th anniversary of Juan Antonio Samaranch's death. Speaking of excellence and life. presidents for life. Yes. Wow. Man. Is it really 10 years? I know. It doesn't seem like it's been that long, but kind of has been that long. I mean, yeah, so just, much has changed. And just a legendary president. It's also the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Plant a tree in honor of Juan Antonio. Or John Coates. Plant a rogues bush. (laughs) Okay. I think that's a good time to end. This is going to be the last time we do this ending. That's right. Well, that will wrap it up for this week. Let us know your thoughts on the Yen novella and what you're looking forward to with the new show. Email us at olinfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 53070fever or olinfever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. You no touch. No touch. Do, 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 do.